I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And yes, that is the name of the show, and it's also who I am, as I am the proud and indeed blessed spouse of Rabbi Erica Gerson. Now, one of the many benefits of being a rabbi's husband, and I encourage all of you young Jewish men out there who are not married to find a rabbi and marry her, because one of the many benefits, not the only benefit by, no, by any means, but one of the many benefits is of being married to a rabbi is being able to live in a home which is full with love of Torah and all it represents and all it offers and all it means. One of the uh, great things about the Torah, uh, which hopefully will come through on this show, hopefully it does come through on this show, is that the Torah um, is intended not to be a history book or a cookbook or a law book or an instruction manual, but a guidebook and a guidebook to help us live happier, better and more meaningful lives in the most practical and actionable ways. And on this show, um, I am so honored to be joined by Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, people of all faiths, to discuss their favorite biblical passage. And today we have not only a very interesting guest, but a very interesting passage for a reason which I look forward to explaining and even look more forward to discussing. So um, our guest today is uh, Rabbi Aaron Feinreich, who's better known as Rabbi Aaron. So Rabbi Aaron was born in Brooklyn, New York, and has uh, since become uh, the leader of the Toronto Jewish community. And uh, this is by way of becoming an ordained rabbi in both uh, Canada and in Israel. And uh, Rabbi Aaron has been the senior rabbi of Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto since 1998. And over that time has instituted a kosher food bank for the needy, a summer work program for Jewish teens, provided help for the homeless with the Out of the Cold program, reimagined how afternoon Hebrew school delivers education, and with Cantor Moses of the synagogue, redesigned Shabbat morning, um, among many other things. And that's just at the synagogue and in the greater Toronto community. Moreover, Rabbi Aaron is the past president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis, a member of Israel Bond's rabbinic cabinet, the incoming president of the Rabbinic Assembly of Toronto, and a well-known author and a great podcaster. And I've just uh, listened to uh, a podcast recently that uh, Rabbi Aaron did on Bamidbar, which is the first Parsha of Numbers, and learned so much about our holy city of Jerusalem. So it was so uh, such an interesting podcast, as is everything um, the rabbi discusses. So Rabbi Aaron, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Great to be here, and I love the plug to marrying rabbis. Yes, it's a it's it, it is a it is a great thing to do, and uh, yeah, I am very fortunate to have done it. Rabbi Aaron, tell us how did you get from Brooklyn to Long Island to Jerusalem to Canada, where you became one of the great leaders of the Canadian Jewish community of this and the previous generation? I'm uh, very humbled at the uh, adjective "great." I uh, I'm honored to be in Toronto. My congregation, the Beth Shalom Synagogue, is a uh, filled with powerhouse Jewish leaders, and I'm uh, very fortunate to be there. But Toronto has, uh, in general, been some truly outstanding uh, rabbinic leaders in the history of uh, Toronto. Gunther Plow, uh, Joe Kelman, Dove Marmer. I mean really outstanding rabbinic leaders that have shaped the religious community of, of Jewish Toronto in just the most positive ways. My story is born in Brooklyn, uh, Canarsie. Parents moved out to Long Island, as many, many people did, in search of green land and <laughs> space between homes. Uh, after graduating high school, I went off to Bar Ilan University, where I, where I got my BA. I studied in their Advanced Talmudic Institute. Afterwards, I uh, did machal, did some army service. 
And then I completed my rabbinic studies in Jerusalem. That was in 92, Mark. And uh, you and I are both old enough to remember that Israel in 92 economically was was not the Israel of today. It was a mess. Right. And uh, there were no jobs. You couldn't get a job sweeping in a restaurant. So uh, I went back to New York, um, thought about doing a bunch of different things, took LSATs, uh, did this and that. And um, an opportunity opened up in Toronto. And uh, lo and behold, I've been here almost 30 years now. It's been just the most remarkable chance thing that occurred in my life. So actually, in my book, I uh, quote a poet who described Toronto as New York run by the Swiss. <laughs> Is that accurate? I would agree with that until COVID broke out. And, <laughs> and now that the paucity of vaccines make us look like the opposite of the Swiss. But um, Toronto is a very, very vibrant city, very metropolitan in its core, uh, highly educated. Um, the Jewish community here has remarkably strong values, highly Zionistic, um, very different from America in some important ways. Interesting. How is it different from America? Different from America in that um, the most recent Jewish population study done of the Jewish community in not only Toronto, but in Canada as a whole, shows that degrees of synagogue affiliation, full-time Jewish education, commitment to Israel, visits to Israel, charitable giving is significantly higher than one would find amongst American Jewry. Interesting. And that's true from the reform through the Orthodox in Toronto? That is correct. The, the reformed Jewish day schools, Leo Beck, um, these schools have waiting lists. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, of our congregation, you know, we have almost uh, 1,100 families in my congregation, many who are young. More, nearly 50% of all the kids in our synagogue go to full-time Jewish day schools. Wow. Well, it sounds like uh, that the uh, Toronto Jewish experience is one that uh, we here in the United States should study. Interesting. So your, your passage uh, that you chose uh, from the Torah, it's such an interesting passage for the reason that no one has chosen it before, or frankly, anywhere around it in the Bible before. And God willing, we might do another thousand episodes of The Rabbi's Husband, and there's a very good chance that no one else will choose it. So it's, it's certainly obscure, but like everything else in the Torah, interesting and instructive. So uh, let's discuss your chosen passage, which is Numbers 789. And this is uh, at the conclusion of Parsha Naso, which is an action-packed Parsha with the priestly blessing, the Nazir, the adulterous woman, all kinds of things. So many interesting things that by the time we get to chapter 7, verse 89, many of us just are done with the studying of it. So I'm so looking forward to learning from you today about uh, Numbers 789. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's almost like, you know, at the very end of a movie, they have that little prologue, <laughs> and it actually sums up the whole movie, <laughs> but everyone's tired because it was so exciting before. Um, this small verse, uh, verse 89, at the very conclusion of Parashat Naso, of the Torah reading, um, I think is highly powerfully instructive. It's a message for us about our everyday lives. As you rightly point out, it's an action-packed, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone movie, <laughs> stuff happening all over the place. And the last part of it, of course, is this elaborate, ongoing dedication ceremony that initiates the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle the Jews worshipped in as they wandered the desert. And then after that ceremony is done, and the Mishkan, this portable tabernacle, is now open for business, meaning tomorrow morning, the lights go on, the Kohen, the Levi is there, and they start doing what they do, the sacrifices, the this, the that, they're all doing their stuff. And now for that moment of the next day, when the lights go off, final verse mm. brings us quietly into the picture. And what do we find? Moses is the last person in the Mishkan. Everyone, Mark, has gone home. And Moses says, you know what? 
maybe I'll drop by and say hi to my friend. And of course, his friend is God. The verse then tells us as follows. And once again, this is verse 89, chapter 7 of Numbers. Uvavo Moshe, and Moses goes into the tent of meeting, meeting, excuse me, which is the uh, the Holy of Holies. Lidaber ito, to speak with it or with him, God. And as Moses comes in, he hears, Vayishma et love. And Moses hears the voice speaking from on top of the ark between the cherubs. That's where he heard the speaking. So the question that emerges from this immediately is, who is God speaking to? Because nowhere in this verse, Mark, does it ever indicate that God calls Moses. Fascinating, right? It doesn't say, God doesn't speak to Moses. It doesn't say, God calls Moses. There's nothing like that at all. It doesn't say what God's saying. It doesn't say what he's talking about. A hundred percent. It doesn't even say what God is saying. It simply is almost like when you were a kid and if you woke up like after going into bed and you would hear your parents talking in the TV room and you would like try to listen in a little bit, right? It's like you're walking in on a conversation and Rashi, our great, great biblical commentator, and uh, I'd like to note for the listeners that Rashi is not only important to the Jews, uh, Rashi is important both for old French linguists because Rashi references in excess of 2,000 old French words, but also Martin Luther, who's the founder of Lutheranism, Protestantism. Martin Luther used Rashi uh, extensively in uh, formulating his own exclusive translation of the Bible. So Rashi provides for us through the Midrash, an explanation of what's happening here. In other words, the question you asked, Mark, who's God talking to? And Rashi says that the word Midaber, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit anachronistic, but just bear with me. He says the word isn't really Midaber, it's Mitdaber, which is a passive act of where God is speaking to itself. Moses walks into the tent of meeting, into the Holy of Holies, to say goodnight to God, so to speak. And as Moses walks in, he hears God talking to himself. And you're right, we don't even, we're not even told what God is saying, which is a shocking revelation for a person of Moses who we consider to be the greatest of all prophets, the one who communicated with God in a way that nobody else ever communicated, how we had this one-on-one kind of channel with God all the time. And so you're trying to say to me that Moses didn't know or couldn't hear and didn't understand what God was saying, and yet the verse seems to be saying exactly that. We have no idea what God was saying. And not only that, Moses walks in, and God's not even talking to him. Right, what's going on? What's going on? I want to say, before we get to unpacking the exact, I want to say, it's not the answer, because, you know, we know we're Jews. There's no answer. There are answers. So I want to say that um, revelation is the cornerstone of all religious experience. Every major religion has these great revelatory moments that form the foundation of their religious message. I'll tell you a little story. When I started as a rabbi in Toronto, I'm very involved in interfaith work. Early on, for the record, it's kind of interesting, I think, it was lots of Catholic Christian work. Today, Jews and Catholics and Christians don't meet that much because we're all good friends with each other. A lot of the work I used to do before COVID and hopefully afterwards is going to mosques and speaking to our Muslim brothers and sisters. That's such an interesting insight regarding interfaiths. There's no longer the, the, the need to do interfaith between Jews and Christians because it succeeded, it's accomplished. We're now the best of friends, it's all good. Exactly. So in, interfaith is just kind of a step towards something more profound. Yeah, interfaith is more of a step where people, it's not hot anymore. The temperature is really cool. You don't have to prove your friends. Right. You get along. 
you don't agree with everything, but that's okay. It's not such a hot button issue anymore. But with the Muslims, obviously, it is for lots of reasons, political and otherwise. So I spend a lot of time going to mosques and on Fridays and on Sundays, Sunday nights, speaking to communities. I get invited and it's the warmest, most beautiful experience. But also, I'll tell you that um, early on when I was going to uh, an interfaith program at the Archdiocese, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Toronto, and there's ministers and Anglicans and all kinds there, I was, I was the only rabbi. They were asked, uh, when did they get the call? Mm. So minister says such and such, and the priest says such and such, and they get to me and I said, I wasn't really trying to be funny, but it ended up being, everyone laughed about it. I go, I haven't gotten a call. <laughs> I've never heard rabbis talk about the moment they get the call to serve God. But in retrospect, did you get the call? As my teacher used to say, I'm still waiting for the call. <laughs> I, I, I don't, we don't talk like that. And I think there's a reason, actually. Why is that? I think that Judaism speaks about revelation in the course of time, not through particular interventions. We see ourselves um, as revelation on a collective level, not on a personal level. We're part of something. And that's the message I think, by and large, Jews traditionally have carried out. Jews don't do pilgrimages. Like, we don't have a pilgrimage going to Mount Sinai. I mean, why is that? Why don't we have pilgrimages going to Red Sea? But the Hebrew term for angel is the same as the term for messenger. And we believe, because it happened to Abraham and many others, that angels are just regular people carrying a message from God and giving it to each of us, which could transform our lives. True. True, but I think you, one would also find that there's a, there's a fair amount of skepticism in the biblical record about how attentive people are to divine messages. But isn't that the fault of people? So, so the messages are being carried, but we 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 might be uh, defective listeners. Uh, true, but that seems to be the condition we were made in, right? I mean, it's, listen, it's a it's a fair and good question. But I, I, just to reference the point, I think that on a whole, Jews don't spend a lot of time analyzing the calls they get from God, right? And and I think to the point, if I could just make one other point, and that would be in Islam and in Catholicism, if you don't believe in God. If you're a lapsed Muslim or Christian, you're considered not part of the religion. But there are really many great atheist Jews and Jews who contribute mightily to the enterprise of the Jewish people. And I think there's an interesting distinction there that Jews seldom spend time thinking about, but it's worthy of of thinking about it. I mean, personally, I can tell you that in my congregation, there are a number of self-declared <laughs> atheists. And anytime I look to raise money for a great cause, they're the first people I call. And they're the first people who write checks. Why is that? I think because um, this idea of revelation of message is something that we see ourselves on a collective level, not on an individual level. So what's God doing talking to himself? And what might he be talking about in number 789? Isn't that a great question? What is it that God talks about? <laughs> and, and he doesn't, it's not like Moses comes in, then God just starts being silent. God keeps... Yeah, or God says, oh, you're here. Okay, I got something on my mind. Right. It's like, it's nothing. It's the weirdest moment. I, I would say, you know, certainly the burning bush, Moses, uh, we told that Moses stumbles on the place. Right. But God's ready for it. Here, it's like on both sides of the coin, no one is really paying attention to the other. Does this show their extraordinary um, intimacy with each other? Oh, that's such a beautiful thought. Well, that Moses could come in on God talking to himself, and it's okay because it's Moses, so I'm just going to continue what I'm doing. It's yeah, and you belong here. This is your home kind of thing. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. Right. You can kind of be alone with each other. Exactly. That's like real intimacy. You know, when you're 
when you first start dating your spouse, you always feel the pressure not to have a moment of silence. Right. And then when you're married for a long time, you can go a whole car ride and never talk. Right. And you're not separate from each other. It's just there's intimacy there without words. Or when there's separation, you're very careful about every word you're saying, how it will be interpreted, how it will be received, what is he or she going to think. But when you're intimate with somebody, you no longer have to do that. No, that's true because it's trust. That's right. And you can just be yourself. Yeah, 100%. So is that what's going on here or is it, or is it something else? Listen, Mark, the, the beauty of uh, lots of biblical verses, and you've spent a lot of time speaking to really smart people about uh, Torah is, you know, there's lots of stuff that you can look at it. And the great thing, the reason why I went into religious studies, I believe in hindsight, is that you really can ever be wrong. Right. It's not like science or math. So I think that's certainly a beautiful draw that you could take from it. The other thing I'd want to take from it is, is that I think that it reflects something very genuine about the moment and the way that we live in a respect that after all the cacophony of the dedication and the ceremonies and all these other things, that perhaps the real condition of the world we live in is that we don't talk to God and God doesn't really talk to us. But God is kind of the music that plays in the background. And if you live your life correctly, then you're attuned to it. You hear it. You're not deaf to it. Fascinating. And I think that uh, the moment of our lives, the real kind of lives we live are the day after kind of lives. It's not the explosive big moments, the big dedication. No, it's Mishpatim after Yitro. 100%. Yes, it's the details. It's not the spotlights and the big music and whatnot. It's what you go home after you turn the lights off. How do you hear God in your moment? And if you expect that God's going to come and knock on your door and tell you what to do, well, you're mistaken. Your job is to listen for God in the moments that you live. And that's what Judaism, moreover than anything else, expects and asks us to do, is to hear God. So God's always speaking in your understanding, which I think is magnificent. Everyone's Moses. God, of course, is always God. God is always speaking. We just can choose to either listen or not listen. And and so I want to throw a question at you. When you when we say and you say that God is speaking, what does that mean? Right. What does that mean? And so on one hand, personally, Mark, I'd like to suggest that the sense of God speaking is not per se words. I want to say that it is perhaps sound, feeling. Uh, Bill Bryson wrote this great book. He's written a lot of great books, but he wrote a book called A Short History of Everything. And he talks about the moment where they discovered the Big Bang. Bell Laboratories had a huge antenna uh, not far from where you live in New Jersey. And the uh, scientists were hearing feedback on the, uh, on the antenna. So what do they do? They go, okay, we got to go out and clean the antenna. And then they still hear this static. And then they go, maybe this is something else. And in the end, what, 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 what was it? It was the radio waves from the initial. We know about the Big Bang because of that. Oh, wow. Huh. Bryson in his, in his book goes into talking about that. And I often think that that is, you know, people ask me, you know, if Judaism is the truth, why are there so many other religions? And well, first, I always say that the Judaism is not the truth. Judaism is the truth for the Jews. Judaism, however, is the truth in the world. Right. And amongst why there's so many different truths, because maybe what happens is, is that the sound of God in the world inspires different kinds of instruments to be played in the orchestra. Magnificent. And when you hear all these different religions talking in the beautiful way that religion should talk, you hear this music and maybe that sound is God. Maybe that's what Moses heard. Well, that would certainly cohere with the Tower of Babel story where people are speaking in the same language, in other words, thinking the same way, and God disperses the people, changes the language. Could 
because God does not want everyone to think the same way or to relate to him in the same way or to access him in the same way. Yes. So how do you think that each of us should interpret Numbers 789 with regards to our lives? So what is the truth, in other words, in this concluding passage of this great Parsha that tells us something and what does it tell us? So I'll answer the question by a story. And the story goes like this. You know, sometimes in life, it's not what you're necessarily born with. It's also when you're born. So there was a, a theologian who wrote and taught in the 40s and 50s and 60s in the Jewish Theological Seminary. His name was Max Kedushin. I don't know if you've ever heard of Max. Anyways, Max wrote a few books, but he had the unfortunate luck of being born and teaching in an institution when Saul Lieberman and Sidney Greenberg and Abraham Joshua Heschel were teaching at the same time. So uh, Kedushin wrote in one of his books with the title, which I forget now, um, but he forwarded a concept called everyday mysticism. And Kedushin's idea is that Judaism is a religion of everyday mysticism. And that is not waiting for those big crashing moments to come to your life and shake you up. Right. But to look for the moments, there's probably five or six or 10 every day in your life where if you just stop for a moment, you can hear the sound of God. And then you got to ask yourself, what am I supposed to do with that? Where is it supposed to take me? That's the noise you're supposed to hear. Everything else is a distraction. So fascinating. So there's not one great call, which is, there might be, but there's not necessarily going to be one great call that's going to send you in a direction for the rest of your life. But it's God is in an ongoing conversation with everyone in the world. And all we have to do is listen, learn, and act. Listen. That's one of the most endearing gifts we have is our ability to hear things. But that also goes with what we are talking about before about how everybody can have experiences with angels because an angel and a messenger is the same thing. And that if God is speaking constantly, he very well might be speaking in the language of messengers or angels, just sending people into our world to deliver us messages that we could either interpret with divinity or dismiss them or not listen to them. 100%. But there's, I guess, alternatively, you could look at it and say to yourself um, that you, Mark, are also an angel. And if we're all conduits to listening to the sound of God, then there's something very angelic to be found in your life. Well, absolutely. I mean, if one accepts the idea, and I think it's a very Jewish, it's right there in Genesis 18. It's almost, you can't accept the Bible and reject the possibility or the probability or the certainty that there are angels all over the place. Then, of course, each of us, we experience angels, but we also must be that angel. Yes. You know, there's a great, uh, the story's told in lots of different cultures, but the Jewish twist on it is really easy. There's this centuries-old yeshiva that is filled with rancor and disturbance and everyone's fighting and killing each other. And the head of the yeshiva finally says, you know what, I'm just going to end the yeshiva, close it down and set everybody on their way. And uh, one of the teachers comes to them and says, you know what, there's a very, very saintly man who's coming into town. Why don't you ask him before you close the doors what you're supposed to do? He says, okay. Anyways, this big tzaddik, this big righteous person comes. He visits the yeshiva, sits down with the Rosh yeshiva, tells him the problem. And he says, I'm going to close the place down. Because what's the point of studying Torah if everyone's going to kill each other? And, the, and this righteous man, the scholar says to him, you're not allowed to close this yeshiva down. And the rabbi says, why? He says, because in the walls of this building, the Messiah live. But you can't tell anybody, he tells him. So the head of the school says, really? He lives? He's in this building? And the man says, yes. But you can't tell anybody. He says, okay. So anyways, what happens is anytime you tell a secret to somebody, it always gets spread. So everybody starts talking about, do you know that in this yeshiva, that the Mashiach, the Messiah is actually here? Everyone starts saying it. And then you know what happens, Mark? Everyone starts treating, treating each other 
with kindness and respect because they say to themselves, maybe the guy sitting next to me is the one. That's the way to live. And that's the way to live. As if you might be that or I might be that. And Moses knew that this was because Moses had the best relationship with God of anybody. And so Moses knew that this is how God relates in the world. So to Moses, it wasn't that big a deal. If you define a big deal as something compared to other things, it's just how God operates in the world. You go in the room, God's always talking. But perhaps maybe this was a lesson to Moses also. Maybe this was a message that after the Ten Commandments, all this other stuff, that now this was going to be his relationship with God, that Moses now was taught and trained to listen to the sound. Maybe that was Moses' gift. Interesting. That God wasn't necessarily going to come to him and knock him on the head anymore. Moses had to listen. So Rabbi Aaron, what a fascinating discussion of this biblical verse that I had never paid any attention to before, much to my detriment, but uh, thank you so much for uh, illuminating this and it's it's actually the way you discuss it it's one of the most important verses in the bible because it teaches us how to relate to god in our lives today which of course is what the bible is about and what the bible is for so now the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text the uh, sacred text of the bible to another text which is andre melrue's 1968 book anti-memoir and uh, he tells a story he said i just um, ran into um, a man with whom i served in the war and he said this man had saved a lot of jews and then had become a parish priest so i said to the priest this is uh, years later i said to the priest um in all of your years of hearing confessions what are two things you've learned about mankind and the priest said one everyone is much less happy than he seems and two there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Rabbi Aaron, as the leader of such an important uh, Jewish community, and not the community into which you were born, uh, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Um, Mark, I've been a congregational rabbi for almost 30 years. I have, a, I have a large congregation, and I've seen the spectrum of human suffering and the way that people undermine their lives um, by doing things that an irrational moment that they would never actually counsel another person to do. Well, let's unpack both of those. Fascinating. How do people act against their own self-interest? Infidelity, um, dishonesty in their businesses, taking chances with illegalities. I mean, even in their personal relationships with their kids and other people, how they behave and talk. So people do things that they would in any moment counsel others, you should do the opposite. So, so this, I guess, is the question, why do smart people do dumb things? Because humans have very bad short vision. Do they think they can get away with it? Or do they think... We always think that, because we never imagine that our lives are going to come to an end, that we always think we're going to have time to fix things. Certain acts you do, they're done. If you have an affair, you can't fix that. It happened. If you cheat in business, it happened. Freud said that when it comes to self-deception, everyone's an expert. Right. Well, is the solution to that uh, Exodus twelve forty two watching? Mm-hmm. Do people who believe that God is always watching have a have a better time making good decisions than those who don't? You'd like to think so, but I'm not sure if the human record is testament to people who believe things are always consistent with their beliefs. Fascinating. Repeat your second lesson again. Let's just discuss that. How the things that actually make people happy, um, in hindsight, aren't really surprising to them. And one simple example is that when people attend synagogue and they walk out and they go to me, you know, I should really come back. That was wonderful. And unfortunately, they don't come back. <laughs> Why not? Is it because they're just being polite to you or because it really was wonderful in their estimation? I'd like to think that from the expression on people's faces and I can sense their body language, I, I think that it touched them. So why don't they come back? The people you're talking about, I'm sure plenty do, but the people you're talking about. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the state of the world we live in. Liberal Jews don't have a sense of commandedness in their life to, that they have to attend these things. Um, they get caught up in their quotidian movements of going places and doing things. And I'm always touched by the fact that the residue of those moments, they carry it with them. And when they go back to it, in the words of T.S. Eliot, they know it better. Well, I guess this is why, uh, of course, this is not Jewish law, but a lore that when we die, God will say, did you create a fixed time to study Torah? Not did you study Torah, but did you create a fixed time to study Torah? Because the, the mitzvah is in the creation of the fixed time. In other words, because if, if a time is fixed, we're going to do it because habits are so, dis so important and so dispositive and so defining of who we are and who we become. So true. Uh, well said. Well, Rabbi, thank you for such a fascinating discussion on so many subjects. And, and thank you uh, as well for just uh, enlightening me as to this uh, incredible passage at the end of the Book of Numbers. And uh, I think teaches us all so many things, uh, not the least of which is why we should all love the Bible, because one could study the Bible for as long as one can study and then come across a gem like this that otherwise would have been completely skippable. It was a pleasure. So nice to meet you. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Goodbye. Okay, wow. Well, what an incredible uh, discussion about a uh, Torah passage that I have to admit I've never studied. I may not have actually ever read it, and I certainly... And maybe this is the point. I've never paid any attention to it. So I'm just so grateful to Rabbi Aaron uh, for um, enlightening me about Numbers 789 and how deeply consequential it is in just defining for all of us how God operates and interacts with each of us and all throughout our worlds. And it's right there in a Torah passage, which I had never studied before and which there is almost no commentary from anybody. In preparation, I couldn't find anything. There's almost no commentary from anybody on this awesome passage, which also just tells us how incredible the Bible is, is that the Bible is the, this is the proof, it's endlessly generative. Even a passage that almost everybody skips over with the right teaching, as from Rabbi Aaron, can just come to life and educate us and instruct us and enlighten us and guide us to living a happier, better, and more fulfilling life. Thank you uh, to Rabbi Aaron for such a, an enlightening conversation. Thank you for listening and next year in Graceland. I'm Mark Erson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com. This podcast is part of the Joshua Network. You can find out more about the Joshua Network at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you for listening.